Welcome to our second OLAC podcast featuring Kathy Lassiter. This podcast is part of the OLAC Lead the Way podcast series. We call this podcast Courage and Educational Leadership Part 2. Our host for the podcast is Deborah Telfer, Director of the University of Cincinnati's Systems Development and Improvement Center. As we learned in the previous podcast with Kathy, she's an author and consultant with Corwin Connect. Her prior experience included public school teaching and administration, both at the building and the district level. In this podcast, I'm going to ask Kathy to share her ideas about the three cups of courage. These ideas are also described in greater detail in Kathy's book, Everyday Courage for School Leaders. The three cups of courage in the book were really selected from a synthesis of the research that I did on best practices for school leaders. Trust, accountability, and risk-taking being the three cups of courage contains so much of what's expected of a principal, and I would submit really include adaptability as well in the risk-taking cup, maybe even in the category of resiliency. But the three cups of courage were selected because without these, a principal cannot be effective. Could you start off by talking about trust? Trust is absolutely essential as a focus area for school leaders for a number of reasons. First of all, a leader has to be believable. If you're asking people to adopt a change agenda or to implement practices that they currently are not implementing or to ask teachers to consider um, new ways of building collaborative cultures in their classroom, they have to have a degree of trust with the school leadership that it's okay to try these things and for it not to work out initially. It's okay to try and fail and try again in the classroom. How does trust set the stage for teachers learning? That really is the only way to push individual growth on the part of teachers as well as organizational growth. Learning is a process in that when we try new things, we're not perfect at them right away. And I have to trust that it's going to be okay to do that. If I don't trust that this is a learning agenda on the part of my principal and If I find that my principal's actions don't match their words, then the likelihood of me taking risks is going to be slim to none. It's also going to squash my best effort, and more than likely what I will do is just try to fly under the the radar and ride it out. When you have people flying under the radar, you don't have their best effort. You don't have their best thinking. You don't have organizational collaboration. Um, People are just doing their own thing trying to get through the day without, um, you know, causing any type of attention to come to themselves. Just from that particular factor, it's very important for, for principals to focus on trust. So what else can happen if there's distrust in a school? If distrust exists in a school where maybe a new per, a principal comes in and, and the environment is very distrustful, Um, Or, unfortunately, if a principal finds themselves in a situation where they've been there and there's a lack of trust, it can be built, um, but it has to be built on really strong communication skills, transparency in school goals, um, consistency in expectations, clear, credible feedback toward very specific goals. Um, And then the support that it takes to help people to operate within this system. 
But the lack of that will kill performance. It kills morale. People will start looking for other jobs. Um, and most particularly, your high-performing teachers will look for, for other places to work. And it, it's impossible to meet school goals and to have a high-performing organization without those degrees of trust. Could you say a little bit about how trust connects to the other cups of courage? The research on trust and, and organizational performance is indisputable. We have researchers like John Hattie and Megan Tishan and Moran, Burke and Snyder, who have done lots of research in the areas of trust, and there's no way that a school can be a high-performing school without high degrees of trust between the teachers and the administration, among teachers themselves, from teacher to teacher, and among administrators to the teacher level. And trust absolutely enables the other two cups, which are the risk-taking and accountability. Um, You can't be a risk-taker and innovator Um, If you don't have high degrees of trust with your staff, with your leadership team, and understand that working together and learning from mistakes and being able to bounce back from failures um, with no hidden agendas is really important for people to give their best effort. Um, Accountability is not possible without high degrees of trust because if teachers perceive that their accountability is about a gotcha system or that they're constantly changing expectations or that the principal is inconsistent in what they're expecting, um, trust is eroded. And therefore, nothing the principal says is believed. People are just going to go undercover and not give their best effort. So it's kind of how the three cups are connected and the relationship really being founded on the idea of trust in a school community. Let's talk about the second cup of courage, accountability. Accountability often evokes negative feelings or resistance because of its association with externally imposed requirements. Why is accountability important within the context of district and school leadership? And what might leaders do to develop shared accountability for the success of all students? It's interesting that we talk about accountability through a negative lens. Um, And that is because of the external accountability factors that school leaders and teachers have been under for for some time now. External accountability through the the lens of threats and humiliation and takeovers and all of these, these things that state departments of education put into place will get you temporary gains, but it's not sustainable. People cannot respond over the long term in an environment that is revolves around threats. So when we have accountability that is internal and when a principal works hard to make sure that teachers feel an obligation to one another, that is much more powerful in improving student learning outcomes than any external accountability system could be. That sounds logical. Is there research to support it? Richard Elmore from Harvard has done a great deal um, of research on external versus internal accountability and found that the internal accountability systems are far more effective. And that really speaks to the relationships that teachers have with one another. It speaks to the kind of culture that the principal sets up that um, we own all students. You know, you might be a third grade teacher, but you own students from pre-K to grade five that they work hard to make sure that organizational goals are known by staff, that organizational strengths are known 
that organizational gaps are known, and that each person sees their place in closing those gaps and celebrating those successes and leveraging the talents of the people that they work with to close those gaps. How does that start? It has to start with personal accountability on the part of the principal. Like it or not, the principal owns everything that happens in a school. And what's really encouraging in the research is the MetLife survey that principals readily accept that accountability. They readily accept the responsibility. Now, they'll say that oftentimes, you know, through policies and resources and staffing regulations, that sometimes they don't feel like they have the support they need to step up to the accountability that they're willing to accept. However, um, they readily admit that what happens in a school on their watch is their responsibility. And so when things go well, um, you know, it is the accountable principles way of, of dealing things to say this, this, this success is due to the staff. This success is a result of the hard work of the people that work here and give that success and celebration to the people who are there. However, and, you know, on the flip of that, when things don't go well, that they step up and accept responsibility. This is my responsibility. This is something that I have to fix. This is something that we need to work together to resolve and move forward. How does this kind of personal accountability fit with the culture in which principals hold high expectations for teachers and other staff members? So that personal accountability and having that accountability be transparent to staff is really important. If you want people to accept responsibility themselves, then model it for them. Because as the principal goes, so goes the school, as they say. And that will lead us to reciprocal accountability where principals can and do, successful principals anyway, have very high demands on their staff. They, you know, have high expectations. They have very high goals for for their staff. But at the same time, they have the recognition that if I have high demands, I have to provide you with high support. So if I have an expectation that we're going to move all students to high levels of achievement, that we're going to have rigorous instruction in every classroom, that we're going to have cohesive classroom environments, then what is my obligation to provide the support you need to do that? I can't just say do this, this, and this and good luck with that. I need to make sure that I have support systems in place. So when I make these demands, high demands, high expectations, in my conversations and work with teachers, I say, and this is what we're going to do to help you. These are the supports that you're going to have in place. These are the resources that we're going to put behind this. This is the time that we're going to dedicate to that. Because those are the, the tools that principals have to support staff through time, through resources. So getting to that reciprocal accountability piece is going to come from the personal accountability of the principal, the shared responsibility of the staff, and then, um, you know, working together to get there. Is there any other type of accountability that's important? The last part of accountability that I talk about in the book is collective accountability. I've had the pleasure of working with some principals who have been very successful at creating a culture where teachers really do believe and act in ways that show they are collectively responsible for the overall results of all students in the school. 
Um, one of those principals was Emily Paul in New Orleans. She's retired now. She was 45 years in education and 20-plus as a principal, working two or three blocks from the Superdome in downtown New Orleans with a student population, 100% students of color, 100% free and reduced price lunch, and in the top five performing schools in the state of Louisiana. And when you talk with her about why, the, you know, why was she so successful with a population that some people would say is very challenging, she said, um, you know, it's one for all and all for one at this school. Teachers share what they think about what's best for the entire school. So if I'm a fifth grade teacher and I have an idea about how kindergarten teachers can improve, you know, uh, reading skills for kindergarten students, they share it. They look at organizational data. They step in and share not only, um, you know, I'm going to work with my team on the third grade, but I'm also going to go to the second grade meeting if, a, you know, time allows and participate in the second grade meeting. I'm going to have conversations about, you know, vertical articulation of students. If I'm a third grade teacher and I, um, or, or I, I'm a third grade teacher and I have a kid who one of our kindergarten teachers was very successful with, I'm going to talk to that kindergarten teacher and say, tell me what you can tell me about this child and the family. What do I need to do to create conditions for this third grade student to be successful? That illustration really showcases the importance of collaborative inquiry and problem solving. That collective accountability piece is critically important, and it's a good thing. It feels good to be on a staff where you're working, you know, it's a synergistic um, culture. And so it's not, accountability is not bad. Accountability is good. And accountability moves us forward, but our accountability is not to an external source. Our accountability is to one another. Our accountability is collectively towards our students. And our accountability is to our community to provide the absolute best education we can for every student. You describe risk-taking as the third and final cup of courage. What are key factors necessary for successful risk-taking, and why are they important practices that can and should be developed by school leaders? Some of the best principals that I have worked with have indeed been risk-takers. What I say in the book is smart risk-taking. We're not talking about people who are um, impulsive and, and making rash decisions. What we're talking about here is smart risk-taking after surveying the landscape and looking at what's working, what's not working, and being able to say to yourself, there has to be a better way here. And risk takers are constantly looking for what's the better way here. And so they'll study operations. They'll study how things work. They will talk to many people in the organization. They will look outside of the organization to see how other people are doing similar um, operations in order to find the best one. But if you can't take a risk and make changes and be innovative in your school, then the results you're getting now are going to be the results you're going to continue to get. If nothing changes, nothing changes. Risk-taking, to me, is an absolute critical skill for school leaders to be able to understand what has to change and then to lead that change initiative. A couple of the principles that I talked to in my book were really very interesting in leading different ways of doing things and being really critical examiners of, of different practices and then getting those through to, to teachers. But the status quo is definitely something that risk takers are not satisfied with. 
and they're not afraid to fail and try again and, and try again in order to do what's best for students. How do these principals decide which risks to take and which to avoid? To be clear, these people are guided by a set of core values, and those core values are centered around what's best for students. And so you have an anchor. Um, so not a crazy person out there just trying things just for change sake, but it really is tied to what's the best way to offer services to students? What are some changes that we can make that will increase their instructional time? What are ways that we can innovate when it comes to instruction? They're clear about their values and they're clear about what they're trying to accomplish. And they understand that they might fail, but they go ahead anyway. Is there a connection between being a risk taker and being resilient? You cannot be a risk taker if you're not resilient because everything's not going to go the way that you plan. There are going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be challenges ahead. And risk takers cultivate their own resiliency as well. And they cultivate resiliency in their people as well to say, okay, this didn't go exactly as we had planned. Let's talk about what we could learn from what we did here. Let's talk about the challenges that we are the changes that we can make to this innovation that we're trying to get done. And let's see how it goes on round two. And I think that you can't lead an effective school if you don't have that mindset, constantly looking for ways to improve the organization on behalf of the students who go there. These three cups of courage seem central to the work of principals. But can a leader be effective without courage? You cannot be an effective leader without courage because you have to lead change, not just manage change. And so if we want to continue to run schools the way we did in the 1950s, even in the 1970s, and just hire managers of operations, and those managers will keep things and keep the lights on, keep the food coming, keep the buses running, keep the books in the building. And that's not really what we need in schools today. We have to have effective leadership, and that leadership requires courage. And when you look at expectations for schools today, it requires leaders, not managers. Change is hard. People resist. Leaders, you know, have to persist through those things. They have to communicate and support people in that change, but they have to relentlessly pursue change agendas based on what's best for students. Thank you. Kathy, can you elaborate a bit on the importance of focus and coherence in terms of everyday courage versus chasing a lot of different programs and initiatives that might be unrelated to the district and school goals for improving teaching and learning? We don't want people chasing every little shiny new initiative that comes down the pike. We need leaders who are anchored by their core values and change agendas that have the student's interest at heart. We have to have leaders who understand that equity, excellence, and inclusion are key factors in successful schools today. And so that has to be an anchor for their leadership. And consistency in what you're trying to accomplish, doing a few things deliberately and purposefully selected from best practice research, implemented well and deeply over time are going to get you the results that you need as opposed to hopscotching from one initiative to another initiative to another initiative where time is not given for it to work, where teachers are not given the time and space they need to perfect that particular 
innovation or that particular initiative, and that causes folks to lose faith in where they're going and why invest so much of my time in one thing when I know in six months or a year from now it's going to change to something else. Um, you know, the, the pre-thought to what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, how we're going to do it, and how we're going to support you are important factors for teachers to invest their time, energy, and effort in, um, you know, in implementing a best practice. And what we really will get from that is commitment versus compliance. If you're hopscotching from one thing to another, you know, teachers are good people. They want to do a good job. Um, they're going to comply. They're going to say, okay, this year it's, you know, the flavor is lemon and next year it's going to be orange and I'm just going to go with the flow. As opposed to really understanding that this is a deep implementation of this particular practice is going to get us to the goals that we have for students, is going to have wide range benefit. It is what's best for kids. It will help build capacity of teachers. It will provide us with an opportunity to give good service to our community and we're going to go deep and we're going to do it well and once we feel like this is part of our culture part of the way we do business around here then we'll talk about what's the next best add-on to strengthen the work that we have in place so you're saying that focus and coherence lead to commitment from teachers and other school personnel you'll get commitment from people where not only will they commit at work but they'll also commit their discretionary time in order to read what they need to read about, talk with staff, um, write quality lesson plans, give good feedback to kids, you know, do all of those things that teachers do on their own time if they're committed and they won't do if they're in compliance mode. Thanks, Kathy. Ohio's Leadership Development Framework articulates essential leadership practices that should be implemented by educators at all levels of the system. In other words, leadership is a set of practices that applies to everyone. Central office personnel, principals, teachers, and others have a stake in improving the system's capacity to more effectively teach and support every student. What else can you tell us about how the development of everyday courage plays a critical role in demonstrating effective leadership at all levels. All levels of the system have to have a student-centered agenda. And oftentimes that's not the case. And it's not the case because politics getting in the way, personal agendas get in the way, territorialism gets in the way, personal um, growth agendas, you know, uh, climbing the corporate ladder, so to speak, gets in the way. And Sometimes it's hard to rally a, a huge organization or even a small one for that matter around a student-centered agenda. And that's where the courage piece comes in. There are committed people in school districts who have that student-centered agenda and sometimes they become a little tainted because they can't achieve their agenda the way that they see that they can. They see that, that some of the people that they work with have you know, other things, other distractions that are getting in the way of doing what's best for every student. And we have to rely on those leaders to have the courage to step up and to constantly put a student first agenda in front of people. Don't want to disparage people who work in school systems, but I have a lot of experience and, and understanding that you have lots of different personalities. If you have those courageous voices in the room, it can recenter others who have lost their way 
who have this way is the best way or student achievement's not my role, you know, I'm in finance. And student achievement's not my role, I'm in communications. And student achievement's not my role because I'm a technology person. But student achievement is the job of every single person in school district. That's why the organization exists, to raise the achievement of students. So regardless of what your role is, whether it's finance, whether it's transportation, whether it's school nutrition, or whether it is in curriculum, it doesn't, it's not only owned in curriculum. It's owned by every person who is employed and receives a paycheck from a school district. How does a student-centered agenda relate to courage and to focus? It takes those courageous voices in the room to rally people behind the core function of that organization, which is teaching and learning. And when you can can rally folks around that, and it has to start at the central office, this is a student learning agenda. Our core business is teaching and learning, and everybody in this organization supports teaching and learning through the functions that they perform in the district. And that is felt and seen and understood by people in schools, and it causes them to follow suit, to have a a learning-first agenda. It seems like this kind of courage is needed in the central offices of school districts as well as in individual schools. It's more natural for a learning-first agenda in schools, of course, because you're you're looking at young people every day and understanding that their educational careers are in your hands, and so it's easier to stay centered on a student-first agenda in schools. But it's felt when there is disorganization in a central office, and it's felt when it what's best for students is not always how how decisions somehow get made. And so that those courageous voices in central office as well as throughout every other element of the school system is important. So when we speak to the job and the challenge of high achievement for every single student, then we start to get into some of the equity issues of the day, especially in communities where marginalized students have been that way for a long time. Or if you work in communities where the dominant community feels as though they're going to lose something, if students who are heretofore not performing to potential are going to gain something. And it's not a zero-sum game like that. We give students what they need when they need it, regardless of who they might be or what zip code they might live in or what part of town they're from. Um, And that, too, is a challenge for leaders of the central office, for the superintendent, for the school board, for, for school principals to speak on behalf of students who um, are not in the high-performing categories yet. Um, and those voices in the room of courageous people who keep that agenda, just keep bringing it back. What about these students? These students are not achieving to the levels that we would hope for. What are we going to do for them? Um, What about this particular school where we've got a school that's underperforming? How are we going to direct resources, time, people, and support to bring that school up to par? Are there other insights from your work that you believe would be helpful to educators in Ohio? The only thing I would add to the conversation in reference to my work and the focus on everyday courage is the idea of deliberate practice. And I know that that has been part of the conversation in Ohio Um, But I can't emphasize it enough that if we try to make improvements and 
improve our practice in many things at one time, then the improvements are going to be slow to come. But deliberate practice based in the research from Anders Erickson out of Florida is that if we want to bring improvement to our schools, whether it be in instructional practice, whether it be in developing your own courage, whether it be in improving operations, that a deliberate and purposeful, intentional focus and constant and repetitive practice on that particular thing is what will make you better. And so we have to identify, we have to help teachers identify what their particular growth areas are for a school year, give them the opportunity to go deep, to practice, to learn, to refine and practice again, very specific one or two goals that they will work on individually. The same for their their teams, the TBTs, the BLTs, and even at the district level, um, to choose one or two things that you want to learn to do better over the course of the year and stick to those things and monitor your progress and recognize when you're making success and make adjustments when you're not proceeding the, the way that you would hope. But to try to bring improvements in many, many different things across the course of the year is not the way to improve performance. And I think that research on deliberate practice um, supports that and will help people grow to the awesome educators that we know they can be. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners for joining us for another OLAC podcast in the series, Lead the Way. I am Stanley Dudek. I provide support and technical assistance for OLAC podcasts through the University of Cincinnati's Systems Development and Improvement Center. Credit for our podcast music goes to Expendable Friend, whose musical composition is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.